All right, let's start over. My name's Steve Shields. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I was talking to someone out in the lobby about the Bible stories uh, series that we're doing here, and they said how they, they just enjoyed it to death. And they said, uh, I, I, I kind of went to church when I was younger, off and on, and I kind of knew these stories maybe by their title or whatever, but stuff like Ishmael, the God who hears me, the God who sees me, that just meant so much to me. And I thought, these Bible stories are just so fantastic, aren't they? And it's not because of good preaching, it's because they're the Word of God. And they are so relevant to your life and mine. We're going to talk about uh, Jesus as he met with a guy named Nicodemus. If I call him Nehemiah today, just change that in your brain because I do have anomic aphasia and I call people the wrong name all the time. I'd like you to open your Bibles to John 3 if you would and there is a Bible app event for this. So if you have the Bible app, you click the little menu and you look for an event near you, you should be able to find ours. John chapter 3, we're going to be reading 21 verses and we're going to read throughout the message. We're not going to read it in advance. We're going to read as we move through the message today. Watergate. Do you know what Watergate is? You know, that gate term is attached to just about everything, any kind of scandal gate, you know, and and what was that, uh, deflate gate? Was that something that happened in the NFL for a while? And and all all the different gates, that all comes from this thing called Watergate. I was 11 years old when Watergate came to town, and my parents did not like the President Nixon, and they were delighted by it, as you can imagine. And uh, he was an embattled president at that point. His administration was discovered to be covering up a break-in at this apartment office complex called Watergate, where the Democratic headquarters were. And the scandal rocked his administration to the point where a couple of different things happened. One of the things that happened was he was forced to resign as president of the United States of America. What a shameful thing, right? The other thing that happened might have felt even worse. Very powerful men in his cabinet were arrested. Some of the most powerful men in Washington, D.C., were arrested, tried, and put in jail. And one of those men happened to be a man named Charles Colson. Don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Colson, but I guarantee you, your life has been touched by his ministry because mine has, and I have used that to touch you through the years, I would admit. Colson was actually labeled the evil genius of the administration, the Nixon administration, and he admitted that. He kind of wore it like a bag, yeah, badge, rather. Yeah, that's me. I'm the evil genius. Colson himself wrote that he was probably the most, the most valuable person to Richard Nixon because he was willing to be ruthless in getting things done. And uh, they said of him that he would walk over his own grandmother if it was necessary. That was Colson. Now, as the Watergate scandal began to unfold and it tightened its grip around Colson's neck, a close friend of him gave him a book that our Saturday men's group is reading. They gave Charles Colson a copy of mere Christianity. Guys, we're in section three, part eight. We're reading that same book on Saturday mornings. Colson read that, and he became a Christian. And hear the sentence, everything changed. Everything changed. Years later, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, at my first church, and we were talking about Colson, and this friend of mine was maybe 10 years older than I, and he remembered that because he was 21 when it happened. And, and he said, uh, yeah, I remember hearing Colson's become a Christian, and I just laughed. <laughs> yeah, right, that's going to last. Yeah, but it lasted. It lasted. When Colson was released from prison, he started a number of ministries. One of the ministries that he started is Prison Fellowship, which really did a couple different things. One thing, it instituted reform in prisons. prisons. So prison, prisoners were treated more humanely. Another thing that it did was it made available to prisoners the gospel of Jesus Christ so that prisoners could find salvation in Christ. He started a ministry because he was born again. 
He started angel tree ministry, and we participate in this every year. Every Christmas, we participate. His ministry, Angel Tree, gives us the name of someone who is in prison so we can buy presents for their children. And we go and we say to little Cindy Lou who, here, honey, this is from your daddy. He can't be here right now, but he loves you. That is my, one of my favorite things to do. One of my favorite things to do. Angel Tree Ministry, Charles Colson. He started another ministry called Breakpoint. It was a radio ministry. And under his leadership, I would say that it stood out as one of the best conveyors of biblical truth of its time. It was an excellent, excellent ministry. He was one of the most powerful communicators, one of the most articulate voices of Christianity in the last century. Now think about that for a minute. Think about it in terms of before and after. (laughs) Before reading Mere Christianity, he was an evil genius. You know, uh, I just discovered this this week. He suggested when, when the heat was on the Nixon administration and the, the evidence was there, they stored that evidence in the Brookings Institute. And, and Colson suggested, let's get some guys to firebomb bomb that place. And while the firefighters are fighting it, we'll run in and seal the evidence. Wow, that's ruthless, isn't it? It's not a good guy. His voice is heard on the White House recording instigating and organizing an attack on student protesters in New York, instigating 200 construction workers armed with seal rebar to go after those college kids that were protesting. That's a bad man. That's an evil man. It's called the hard hat riot. You can read about it. That's the before. And now look at the screen. Think about the after. Think of those life-giving ministries. What happened? What made the change in Charles Colson? Well, Colson gives you the answer to that in the title of the first book he ever wrote. That book is called Born Again. He was born again. And being born again changed his ideology. It changed his identity. It changed his attitudes. It changed his outlook. It changed his ambitions. Being born again changed Charles Colson. Hmm. Where did he get that phrase? born again. Well, we're going to see it today in the story of Nicodemus. Your Bibles are open there. We're going to look right here in John 3. And the first thing we're going to see is a lot about Nicodemus. And we're going to discover that in spite of the fact that Nicodemus was part of Jerusalem's elite, the religious elite, Nicodemus really had a humble spirit, which is very unusual and rare among his peers. We'll take a look at verse 1, and you can see where he came from. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, so he's a Pharisee. Those are the self-righteous among the self-righteous. I mean, those guys never admit any fault and have an ounce of humility. Second, he's a member of the elite, the Jewish ruling council. And yet, and yet he is here to hear from Jesus. He is here to listen to Jesus. He is here to dialogue with Jesus. While others in his position were marked by arrogance and pride, we see none of that in Nicodemus. His position is a position of authority and honor, and yet he is giving so much honor and respect to Jesus throughout his life. Take a look at what verse 2 says. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Okay, he calls Jesus Rabbi, which means teacher at least, and maybe even master. He acknowledges that he has come from God, and that's 
That's actually hard to imagine if you're a Pharisee, that you would say anyone came from God. He acknowledges that Jesus is doing signs that make this an undeniable reality, and he notes God is with Jesus. Some people suggest that Nehemiah had a certain weakness because he was coming under the cover of darkness, so he couldn't be seen by by his peers. I don't know. I'm impressed that he came at all, considering his peers. And I'm even more impressed at how respectful he is toward Jesus. If you've read the Gospel of John, when you get up to about chapter 7, toward the end of that chapter, in verse 50, it, it says this. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, that is the own number of the Pharisees and a ruling council, he asked the council, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Do you see the respect that he has toward Jesus, even before his own peers? Nicodemus' peers regarded Jesus as a threat. Nicodemus sensed that whatever it was that Jesus had, that was something that he needed and wanted even though it was frightening to discover what it might be. That's kind of an important concept. Because often people like you and I can be threatened by someone like Jesus who has the truth, and we kind of miss hearing it because of our fear. We're kind of looking for a safe place where we don't have to hear bad things about ourselves, things that say we need to change. And that is to our detriment when we have that outlook. Nicodemus' hunger for God was greater than his fear of what he might discover about himself. Finally, when Jesus breathes his last from the cross, the cross, a a place of shame, dying a criminal's death, abandoned by just about anyone and everyone, when he finally dies there, Scripture tells us that Nicodemus saw to the burial of Jesus. That's just remarkable. Let me read it to you from John 19. In verse 38 it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking the body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. (laughs) He saw, too, the burial of this shameful criminal, Jesus. At least that's how the world would have viewed him. Now, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, you know that this is pretty unusual behavior for a religious leader in Jerusalem. This is very odd for a Pharisee, but it was worth it. Because Nicodemus learned a great deal that night that he was there with Jesus. Jesus taught him some really important concepts. One of them was that kingdom participation requires personal transformation. Let me ask you something. Have you ever invited a friend of yours to maybe go with you to a Christian event? You know, maybe a Christian concert or a Christian speaker or whatever. It's, a, it's an explicitly Christian thing, and, and they're not really Christians or don't go to church or anything, but you take them along with you, and they go along with you, and afterward, you're just filled with it. Like, wow, 
That music was so good. It just filled my soul, you know? And, and you say to them, wasn't that great? And your friend kind of looks at you and goes, yeah, I guess, I guess that's pretty good. Have you had that experience? Have you had an experience when maybe you were reading in the Bible and God just really spoke to you about something? And it's like, that is just what I needed to hear. And then you bump into one of your friends who, who doesn't know Jesus and, and you say to them, I just got to tell somebody this. I'm reading here and I've been dealing with this issue in my life and just, that just applies to me. That just really changes everything. And that, that friend just kind of, kind of shrugs like, huh, wow, that's cool. Have you had that happen? Or, or, or maybe, you know, you tell someone even something this simple. Someone tells you something hard that's going on in their life and you look at them and you say, hey, listen, I'll be praying for you. And they kind of don't know how to respond. They just kind of politely nod, like, okay. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons might be what Jesus is talking about here in verse 3. It might help you understand why that happens. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Hmm. Unless you're born again, you probably won't understand the deep things of the kingdom. In fact, you'll struggle to understand any of it. I love Nicodemus' next words. Look at the very next verse, verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, <laughs> he's not being dim or slow-witted, okay? I can remember when I was younger, I, 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 I'm thinking, yeah, how can that happen? You know, because I was dim and slow-witted. Nehemiah's a smart guy. I'm sorry, I'm calling him Nehemiah. How many times have I done that? First time. Every time I call him Nehemiah, you switch that in your brain to Nicodemus because that's anomic aphasia. It's not fun to make fun of your pastor for a situation like that that he has, okay? Let me say that again, okay? Nicodemus is not slow or dim-witted. What he's doing here is beautiful because he is inviting Jesus to unfold what he means when he says, born again. He's respectfully saying to him, okay, how can someone do that? What are you talking about? Tell me more. Now, there are a number of ways the next words of Jesus are understood and, and the conversation that is ahead here is understood. There's actually five. I found five of them. And, and, and they all depend on your hermeneutic. Wow, there's that word that we learned last week, hermeneutic, right? How you interpret the Bible. That's what they depend on. I understand what Jesus is saying in verse 5 is that spiritual transformation is a lot like physical birth. Look at verse 5. He says, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of, and then there's two things, unless they're born of water and the Spirit. So I understand what Jesus is saying there is that just like a woman gives birth to a little human being and her water breaks when that happens, that person is born of water, so the Spirit gives birth to a human being who becomes a citizen of the kingdom. Not everyone agrees with me on that. There are people who feel like, no, 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 no. He's talking about baptism. Jesus, when he says born of water, he's talking about baptism there. Unless a person is baptized and born of the Spirit, they can't enter the kingdom. I just don't buy that. You can, you can have that if you want. I won't fight you on it, but I just don't buy it. Baptism is important, but baptism is not your access card to the kingdom of God. You got that? It is not your access card to the kingdom of God. Access comes by grace through faith, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not by works, so that none can boast. Not even a good work of baptism. It is by the grace of God through faith. The reason I believe that Jesus is talking about physical birth, birth of the flesh, so to speak, 
is because of his very next words in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Your mom gave birth to a little human, right? And the spirit, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. Jesus is saying, just as you're born physically, you need to be born spiritually, born of the spirit of God. And this isn't news. This isn't news to Nicodemus. It shouldn't be. In verse 7, Jesus said, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. But Nicodemus, he's still not picking up what Jesus is laying down. Again, he says in verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. Jesus says in verse 10, you're Israel's teacher. And I, I really hear Jesus kind of laughing to himself when he says this. I don't hear him saying, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand this. You know, I hear him saying, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. <laughs> Yada. You ought to, for a number of reasons, passages in the book of Joel, Nicodemus, with which you are familiar. Passages in the book of Jeremiah that talk about a new covenant and the law being written on the heart. Passages like the one in Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This isn't news, Nehemiah. I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. You almost wouldn't have caught it, huh? Okay, let me tell you the truth. I do that on purpose just to keep you awake. That's a lie. That's a lie. This isn't news, Nebuchadnezzar. Not at all. And like physical birth, this spiritual transformation, this being born again, is a personal thing. It happens to your person. In fact, the kingdom of God begins in what happens in your person. And that's something that many people miss. In our society and throughout the ages, people have seen Christianity as a political movement. Really. (laughs) I want to just tell you, Jesus avoided that quite skillfully. Quite skillfully. And sadly, some people see Christianity as being for their specific ethnicity. God help them. God help them. Some see Christianity as being a weapon in a, quote, culture war. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow. Nicodemus would have had a similar problem, a similar mindset. So this concept of the kingdom being personal, that would be revolutionary to him. That the kingdom isn't ethnic? I thought the Jews are the chosen people. The kingdom isn't nationalism? I thought it was all about the nation of Israel. The kingdom isn't political? What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying it's personal. I'm saying it's personal. You and I each need to personally be born again. Because our nationality doesn't do that for us. And our parents can't do that for us. And our church connection does not do that for us. It is our hearts. Hearts that have yielded to God and found transformation in him. That is being born again. And Jesus taught Nicodemus that this kingdom, it requires transformation and the kingdom itself is organic. You're like, what? No wonder it's so expensive. Organic food's always more money. Wow, the jokes are getting worse, aren't they? It's organic. The old timers used to say it this way. In fact, you couldn't be ordained when I was standing before the Illinois Council or sitting before them. They ask you this question, is the church an organization? And you would have to say, no, it's an organism. It's organic. It's alive. The church is active. The church is growing. It's moving. The church is kind of like that special person in your life that never ceases to amaze you and surprise you. That's the church. 
It's always presenting new challenges, and it's always presenting new blessings. The kingdom is organic. I say this for a lot of reasons, but one of them is verse 8. Your Bible's so open, right? Look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. (coughs) So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let me just read that to you again. I'm going to read it, though. I'm going to throw a couple words in there. Verse 8. The pneuma blows. That's a Greek word, pneuma. Tony Bassardi, do you have pneumatic tools in your garage, ones that work on your air compressor, and you hold them up, and and they're air-powered, right? That's called a pneumatic wrench or a pneumatic hammer or a pneumatic whatever, and that pneuma is from the Greek word for air, wind, right? So so as Jesus is speaking in verse 8, he's so intelligent. Of course, he's Jesus. He says, the pneuma blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is it with everyone who's born of the, ready? Pneuma. The wind. The wind. (laughs) People in the kingdom live by the Spirit. The wind of God. I I love the old song. Remember the old song, Life is Like a Mountain Railroad with an Engineer That's Brave? No, none of you remember it because none of you are as old as I am. You remember? Thank you, Dave. Dave's giving me a nod there, right? Thank you for that, right? I love that song, but don't think of the kingdom as railroad tracks. Don't think of the kingdom as a train, because a train's course is static. It is unyielding. It is unadaptable. It sticks right to the rails. If you had been born again, you would do well to instead think of the kingdom and your place in the kingdom the way you might think of a sailboat. And the wind, unless you fight it, it will take you where it wants you to be. He will take you where he wants you to be. God himself directs you by his pneuma, by his spirit. And that's going to (laughs) rub... That's going to rub Nicodemus' tribe the wrong way, buddy. They're not going to like that at all. Because Nicodemus, the Pharisees, they worked hard to make everyone follow the same guidelines. Everyone works by the same playbook. Everyone follows the same rules, the same regulations. In fact, that is what the whole kingdom is about, the rules and the regulation. And Jesus is saying, uh, the kingdom of God is not following a script. The kingdom of God is following a director. The kingdom of God is following the lead of God whose spirit takes residence in the heart of those who are born again. Okay, so number one, the kingdom is personal. Number two, the kingdom is organic. Number three, the kingdom is otherworldly. Just be honest, if I happen to be listening to Jesus or talking to him and I was Nebuchadnezzar, nope, wow, it's an N-word, isn't it, Nicodemus? I'll get every N-word out of the Bible before I get to him. It's just like my mom. She would call all of us a different name until she got down to the dog, and then, you know, you were good, right? Yeah, if I were Nicodemus, if I were Nicodemus, um, these thoughts would cross my mind. What am I doing sitting here? This guy is not part of the leadership in Jerusalem. In fact, I've heard things about his birth. I don't even know if his daddy's his daddy. <laughs> On top of that, he is not a Pharisee. He is not a Sadducee. He's kind of a traveling preacher. What does he know? And the reason I conjecture that Nicodemus might be saying those things is because of what Jesus says in verse 11. It's almost like Jesus anticipates this thought. And in verse 11, he says, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. And then he uses his title, the son of man, me. And Jesus is letting Nicodemus know that the affairs of this world, the kingdom of God is beyond them and above them. 
that it's not about Caesar, that it's not about Herod. It's not even about the empire of Rome. So while the kingdom of God is relevant to this world, it is beyond this world. And then Jesus speaks of Nicodemus' entry into the kingdom. He tells him we enter the kingdom by faith, by trusting God. Numbers 21 in the Old Testament is a Bible story we shouldn't have skipped because then I could just say, do you remember Numbers 21? We skipped that particular story. It's a really weird story. In Numbers 21, the people of God are coming out, they're in the wilderness, and they're a little ticked off because they've been eating the same thing forever, and it's hot, and it's stinky, and those animals, and I, whoa, where's this promised land that we're always hearing about? What are we doing wandering around out here? And then they say it. I don't think Moses or God knows what they're doing, and I think we should throw them both out. Whoa, even just saying that, because I know I don't mean it, and God knows I don't mean it, kind of just makes me uncomfortable. They said that sort of thing in Numbers 21. And the scripture said that God sent serpents among them. And these serpents bit them, and many of them died, and many of them were sick from the snake bite. And so they did what anyone with any sense would do. They called out to God and said, save us, save us. And he is such a good God. In his mercy, he, he saved them. Listen to what he says to Moses in 21, 8 and 9. Moses Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That is a weird story. Unless you realize it's referring to Calvary. It's kind of a preview of Calvary. And so in verse 14, Jesus says to Nicodemus, who would have been familiar with the Numbers 21 serpent story, He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And so when you look to the cross, when you trust in the Son of Man lifted up on Calvary, you find life. And then the very next words Jesus say are probably the most popular thing, the most popular Bible verse that there is. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the son and the name of God's one and only son. And then Jesus taught Nicodemus one more important thing. (laughs) The kingdom is here if you want it. The light is here if you want it. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The light's here. The kingdom's here, if you want it. So as I'm writing this rather lengthy (laughs) discourse concerning this Bible story, I jotted down a couple questions, three of them to be precise. I think they're pretty good questions for you to ask yourself, questions for you to think about. The first one is this, what is my faith like? What does my spiritual life look like? (laughs) Remember, Jesus says that this being born again is a great transition. It's like childbirth. 
So have you experienced a transformational interaction with Jesus? Yes or no? Have you? Has he transformed your thinking? Has he changed your life? That is what happened to Chuck Colson. And our screen was littered with the outcome of that. He read mere Christianity and saw, wow, there's the Jesus that I need. And he confessed that reality to Jesus. Jesus, I need you. I need you to change me because I am an evil genius. I need you to fix me. And Jesus changed his life and Colson was born again. Now you may be thinking, you may be thinking, well, I'm nothing like Charles Colson. Uh, I can see why an evil genius would need to be born again, but I'm, I'm not like that. I'm a pretty good guy. And I'm going to tell you, that's a pretty reasonable thought that you're having there. But let me ask you this question. How do you compare to Nicodemus? I mean, we just talked about what a good man Nicodemus was. I look at him before he even knew Jesus. I feel like he's a better man than me. He was a good guy, a good man. But Jesus said to him, unless you're born again, you, Nicodemus, the non-evil genius that you are, you need what I'm talking about. You need change. You, Nicodemus, need the heart of stone in your chest replaced with a heart of flesh. You need to be born again. So the question's for you. It's on the screen. What is your faith like? What does your spiritual life look like? If you're feeling like Nicodemus, as if the centerpiece is missing, maybe even never was there, then here's the next question. What do I need to do to be reborn? I feel like sometimes we say, you need to be born again. You need to get saved. Yeah, okay. How? What do I need to do to do that? And let me just say something real specific that it might require of you. You might need to let go of your tribal mentality. Huh? What in the world do you mean by that, Pastor? I am so glad you ask. <laughs> Just because you're an American, that doesn't mean you're born again. You're in a county with a tribe, or a country rather, with a tribe that has a good number of people who identify themselves as Christian, but being born again is personal, it's not tribal. Just because you attend an Alliance church or any other church from that, for that matter doesn't mean you're born again. You're maybe with a tribe that teaches about being born again, but that doesn't mean you are because being born again is not tribal. It is personal. Just because you're in this family, the Shields family or the Smith family or the whatever family, that doesn't mean you're born again because being born again is not tribal. It is personal. Unless you think, yeah, I don't know where you're getting at. How about Jesus? Can I get it from him? Because Jesus uh, addresses tribal faith when he says to the Jewish people, and do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. It's not tribal. It's personal. It's personal. Is your faith tribal or is it personal? Have you gone to Jesus with a heart that knows you aren't who you should be and ask him for forgiveness? Have you personally confessed your own sin to him? Jesus, I got some garbage that I just need to tell you about. Even though I know you know about it, I gotta get it off my heart. 
Have you gone to him and said, this heart of stone, I need it to be gone. I want a heart of flesh. And Jesus says that you, that I, must be born again. That you and I need to pursue a personal change of heart and personal transformation. Anything short of that is not what the kingdom is about. And when you ask him for that, he gives it. When you go to him and say, I need to be born again, he doesn't say, okay, I'll get to you later. When you go to him and say, I need that newness of life that that Jesus told Nicodemus about, he doesn't say, okay, we'll work on that together. There's some things we need to work on that. In the honesty and humility of your heart, when you bend the knee to him and say, save me, he says, look to the son of man who is lifted up and you will be healed. And he changes your life. He changes your life. He did that with Charles Coulson. He did that with Steve Shields. He does that with you. Third question. How do I maintain this new life? You know, uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I'm a grandfather. And uh, my granddaughter was here this past week. She left on Wednesday. Our home was filled with mourning for uh, the next couple days. Something you notice when you're around a little baby is how dependent they are on people around them. You know, they need lots of care. They need someone to help them eat, someone to make sure they don't eat the dirt out of the plant, right? They need someone to help them drink, someone to ensure they're not pouring their milk in a stream across the kitchen floor. They need someone to help them walk, someone to help them talk. They need people to encourage them along the way. Oh, sweetheart, you are just the best granddaughter anyone had, except for your cousin, until you were tied. Little babies, freshly born, need help. They need care. And being born again has similar characteristics. You need to connect with people who will help you eat and drink from God's word, consume his word, so to speak. You need to be with people that can help you to be a Christ follower, someone that you can see their example and walk the way they do. And you need to be with people who will encourage you along your walk. Those aren't bad questions. What does your faith look like? Do you need, what do you need to do to be reborn? How do you maintain that new life? (laughs) You know, statistics vary. And sometimes you feel like uh, four out of five pastors make up the statistics on the fly while they're preaching. (laughs) Right? I don't have a number for you, but I know I've read numbers that vary widely that in an assembly like this, a Bible, in a Bible-believing church, in an assembly like this, there are people who are like, whoa, I never got that before. Whoa, I thought because I was a member of this church, I was good. I thought because I tithe regularly, I'm good. I thought that because, hey, my grandpa, his grandpa, we're, we've been Christians all the way since we were in the old country. We're good. I thought it was about, I didn't know that I, had to be born again. Buddy, if that's you, I have good news. Because you can be born again. You turn your heart to Christ. You confess your absolute need for him. You look to the cross. You see his forgiving spirit. And you receive him into your heart. I want to pray that you can do that today as the worship team comes. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together.
Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father in heaven, we've considered a couple different questions. What does our faith look like? And maybe the first answer to that question for some of us is, I was born again when I was 16 years old and I've never looked back. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for that. Maybe others of us, the answer is more like, um, you know, I don't know that I ever really dealt with this and never really asked God to give me that new heart. I think I need that. That's the person we're thinking of today, God. I pray that you would show them what they need to do to re- to be reborn. And really, they hardly need to do anything because you do the heavy lifting. You paid for the sin on the cross, Jesus. They just need to say, could I please have that? In humility of heart, in recognition of their need, they say that to you in the silence of their thoughts. Hear their hearts as they say, Jesus, I need to be born again. I need a heart of flesh to replace my heart of stone. As they've done that, maybe just in the last 10 seconds, I pray that you will show them your goodness and your newness of life. And they will sense it, that they will sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. And as they maintain this new life, they will connect with your word. They will connect with your followers. They will connect with other Christians to encourage them along the way. And that they will walk after you with all their heart. I pray that all of us would walk after you with all our hearts. Because we're not here to play games. We're not here to do just just silly social things together. We are here to encounter Jesus, to learn how to serve him, and to see how he would have us preach this gospel of the kingdom to a world that desperately needs to be born again. Make that happen personally in our hearts, for Christ's sake.